It's a little weird sound thing. Don't don't make me bust out my my cool electronica song. Uh, I'll play it. I'll play the hell out of it. You know I will. Hey, welcome to episode 11 of On Taking Pictures. This is a weekly podcast where we talk about the art and the science behind making images. My name is Jeffrey Sidoris from FadedAndBlurred.com, and somewhere in the internets is photographer, fancy photographer, Bill Wadman. You're not going to get away from that. You know you're not. I know. I'm going to live with that till the end of time. <laughs> I only wish I was as fancy as everyone thinks I am. Well, a boy can dream. You know, we have a we have a comment on the uh, the iTunes right for the show. There are several. The, yeah, there are a bunch, and, and, and it's thank great. you for the, for those. I you're going to surprise me. You said not to read this one. It yeah, just okay. came in apparently. Okay, it's five stars. Nice. Uh, the title like is those. "Wonderful Photo Podcast" by by a user named Doctor Nick. So if Doctor Nick is out there, hello, Doctor Nick. You ready. The yes. best photo podcast I know of, despite having only just started recently, the hosts have an excellent rapport. Bill Wadman has a smooth radio manner, but is willing to voice potentially unpopular opinions, separating him from the anodyne, overly clubby world of celebrity internet photography that seems to carry on at many other large photo podcasts. Wow. Yeah. Now... I think that that's wow. very nice. They also say we get the prize for the most mentions of Collodion in the 21st century. That that is probably a prize that we would get. Yeah. The point or, I'd like or to printing, really. Yeah. The the point I'd like to make is that uh, I voice opinions and I don't know that they're per- particularly potentially unpopular. I think that I just voice opinions of any kind which on most shows they don't do that. So we're less filtered. Is that what it is? I, I could say we're less filtered. Well, you're less filtered. Yeah. We you're, also, the, you're, you're crankier than I am. Uh, I generally am crankier than you are, but that's easy. <laughs> it's a front. I'm, I'm, I'm way crankier. I just don't show it. Uh, we also got that email from the Caroline Davis. Right. Which was very nice. Which you That ha- was really cool. Yeah, you don't have to read the whole thing, but, but no. that, that is, uh, thank you, Caroline. That's, that's really nice. She, yeah, she said we restored her faith in photography. Which is really good. By the way, she also likes to point out that uh, the Impossible Project film for the Polaroids is $23 for eight exposures. Yeah, that's... You know what? Little tiny Polaroid camera is not worth $3 a shot. That's just silly. How much would like 8 by 10 be if if that's... Back in the day, I used to buy Polaroid 55 for about $50 a box, and there's 20 per thing, so... About the same price for Polaroid 55. And nobody is making this stuff anymore, huh? No, no. That's too bad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very sad. Uh, let's see, what other follow-up we have? Uh, a bunch of people sent us um, the article about that uh, Olympic portrait photographer. Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's kind of been everywhere for the last couple of weeks now. Yeah. And uh, apparently, you know, we kind of railed on the guy, or I did because I voiced potentially unpopular opinions. <laughs> um, a lot of people have said, oh, these these are crappy portraits and whatever it is. And I said, you know what? The guy probably had, you said, look what Annie Leibovitz did with these guys. And I said, well, you know, she probably had a team of 36 people and four hours a piece with them too. 
Right. Um, and it turns out that he had a couple minutes each that he showed up to this event thinking he was going to be shooting them up on stage. So he had a couple like long zooms with them. Uh, and it turned out that it was supposed to be more of a studio thing and he didn't bring a setup because no one told him to. And he was shooting on somebody else's setup and he had a couple minutes each. You know, it's are they great photos? Even under that, they're not great photos. But, you know, the guy did the best he could with the situation he had. Right. And uh, and I understand that. Although it really must suck to be in that situation. To be getting yeah, the I most mean, it, press you've probably ever gotten for something that's not positive. Right. And it's it, he's going to be under scrutiny for a while on on future things, I would imagine. Yeah. No, I'm sure. So that kind of yeah. sucks. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we'll put a, a, a link or two in the show notes to some of these rebuttals. Um if you guys missed last week, we did two episodes. We did our main episode, and then we did a little bonus episode about Hackintoshes, which a bunch of you probably skipped. <laughs> Though it was really a popular episode. We, it, we got a lot of feedback on it. A lot it. of feedback and, and, and a lot of downloads. And I just wanted to read one little comment from, uh, what's the guy's name? You like the name. Willard, is it, it's either Cheevers or Chivers. I would imagine it's Cheevers. What Cheevers? would you think? Chivers? Willard, Chivers, Willard? Shivers? Maybe. Uh, he said... Either the, way, coolest name ever. Yeah, at the end of his email, he said, I have a 27-inch iMac sitting on my desk next to my Hackintosh that I use to watch movies while I edit because it's not just not as smooth. So there's somebody who's putting their hat in the ring saying Hackintosh is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, we got a, <laughs> we got a quick uh, quote. Uh, you want to read the quote? You're going to make me do it, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, if, if I knew how to take a good photograph, I'd do it every time. Now, now who said this fantastic quote? That was Robert Duano. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. I do believe that's how he pronounces it. I, I think it is. I like I, that. I had to watch Amelie to prepare for that, so <laughs> I, I think I'm okay now. <laughs> Robert Duano. I love that. If I could speak like that all the time, I would. Yeah. It's good. Would you really? I, well, maybe not all the time. You could move but, to France and actually do that, you know. Ugh, but then I'd have to live in France. Oh, such a hardship. <laughs> a, a friend of mine is, has to, has to, is, is moving to uh, Amsterdam, and his wife is going with him because he got a job there. And, uh, That's good of her. Yeah, and she, she's, she's very upset that she has to go from New York to Amsterdam. And I'm like, you know what? The grand, I've heard Amsterdam is really nice. Yeah, in the grand scheme of reality, I think it's okay. Yeah. No, I, I could adjust to Paris, I think. Yeah. I'm sure you could. You know, it's not that difficult. Um, <laughs> it's ooh. got nothing on, you know, the suburbs of Southern California. <laughs> it's true. It's fantastic. It's beautiful out there. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's a lovely time of year here. Uh, all right. So what do we got on the docket for this week? Hey, you know, uh, lots of stuff, but I, I just downloaded. Um, are you a fan of, of the British Journal of Photography? Do you ever go to their site? I don't get the magazine, but I do go to their site quite a bit. Uh, I don't, but uh, fill me in. I, it, it's a, just a, a really great resource for uh, photojournalism, street photography, portraiture, uh, just fantastic editorials. And they have released uh, an iPhone app now. And what's kind of cool is, first of all, it's, it's beautifully designed. Um, and basically each edition or issue 
of the iPhone app will focus on one uh, photographer. And, uh, and they only do one at a time, but it's, it's sort of a, a mini, I guess, a mini monograph, if you will, of, um, of an individual photographer. And it's free. Each, each of their iPhone issues are going to be free, which is kind of cool because most of the magazines and publications that are out there on the iPad charge per issue. And to be honest with you, very few of them are any good. Okay. Uh, I'm surprised at how bad so many of them are. So are they going to update the particular app or are they going to have it in like newsstand where there's actually... It's in newsstand. Okay. Yeah. And uh, this this first edition is um, is a spotlight on Roger Ballin. Okay. Um, uh, it's called Enter the Asylum is, is the title of the piece. Uh, but really nice editorial and uh, some some very cool photographs. Um, so, and it's, you know, it's a free download. Really nice. Um, so check it out if you've got an iPhone. Um, the next one is, oh, what is the guy's name? Um, Peter Hugo. Okay. Uh, who uh, had some really amazing photojournalistic shots of uh, it's like some of these warlords with like hyenas and, and baboons as pets and things. Did you see that set? Yeah, I, I remember when I used to have a baboon. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. I was I was a warlord once. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I've, I I don't know that I've seen the. Well, I may have. I've seen pictures like that. So you maybe probably they have. His. They were on PDN, and I think he won some awards with them. They're, uh, yeah. they're very dramatic shots. But he's going to be the the focus of the next one. So, uh, British Journal of Photography. Are they available. all British photographers? I don't know. They've only done the the one episode so far. I don't know what they've got planned. Okay. I would hope not. I would hope that they would. Just make it about the work, not necessarily some sort of nationalism. Yeah. Never know with those Brits. You never know. <laughs> wow. Look at that. What a, two, two minutes 40 in? Good. What else? Sorry, sorry Britain. Um, kind of an interesting – we're both kind of from a design background. Um, there's a, a project that's attempting to document every human skin tone with Pantone colors. Did you see this? That is interesting. Yes, I have seen that. Kind of interesting, right? Well, it also shows the variance in different skin colors, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, it's a much more... Uh, for those of you who have or have not had to uh, try to do, like, retouching where you're actually trying to get really accurate color, uh, sometimes it's really difficult. Uh, I've started using uh, uh, a CMYK tests to do that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, doing it by the numbers? Uh-uh. Really? Yeah. So, wait, wait. To get what did you do? Like rebalancing the image before you correct it? No, like okay. So you, let's say you have an image in Photoshop and it's like some you know thirty year old white girl, right? Okay. And she's the color's way off, and you can't get her skin color quite right. What you can do is you can put down an eyedropper, like a like a, a sampling, you know, sure little sure. marker, and then go up in the information panel and in the drop down for that sample, you can choose CMYK and it shows you the numbers for CMYK. Oh, okay. And if you get what you're trying to do is get the uh, magenta and uh, the yellow about equal, and the cyan about a third of what the other two are. Okay. And if you look at that, you can you can look at those numbers, and if if cyan is you know almost as much as the other two, well that no that means you have way too much cyan. Or if yellow and, and magenta are out of whack, bring one of them up or the other one down. And it kind of it can give you a way to work with uh, 
the colors to, to get closer to what you're looking to get. Uh, uh, when, you know, you can open up a, um, a curves adjustment right. layer interesting, and go into now, red and just kind of grab the middle and, you know, move it up or down to, to bring in more red or, or, or more cyan, you know, when did you start doing this? How, how did you, how did you come I upon read this? it somewhere and there's actually different, um, there's different basically recipes for different skin colors of different nationalities and that kind of thing. Huh. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, perfectly accurate. Right. But if you keep looking at a picture and you're like, yeah, that's not quite right. Sometimes it can be useful to actually have an objective measure, right, of the color. Uh, I'll try to find a. I'll try to find a link uh, to color correcting skin. That would be cool. Yeah. I mean, this. It looks like there are hundreds of variations on skin tones that that they are putting up so far, and it's an ongoing project. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's so uh, it's, it's it's a really really tricky thing. Uh, yeah, Very see, they have, they have a thing here. Common skin tone examples like light Caucasian, Caucasian, Asian, light black. Like, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, the different things here. I'll, here, I'll put, this in, I'll put this in the show notes. Okay. Um, but uh, color correcting with, with numbers is, is a fun thing. Uh, but, yeah, the, the Pantone thing, the question is, I mean, is it really just sort of a lot of the same colors with different darknesses, you know, with, with different – That's uh, what I don't know. I don't know how much – Variation there actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Are they trying to get the skin tone to the Pantone yeah. or just taking so many that eventually you're going to match up with one? I don't know. And some of I these guys have gotten way too much of a tan or sunburned and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, but it is interesting. And it, it goes to show you it's very difficult. Certain people, like even my partner Heather, um, has is very pale and kind of shifts a little bit towards the magenta You know, hmm. in reality. So taking your picture and getting the color right is very difficult to do. I mean, you can get it if you get it accurate for her, it looks a little strange in pictures because it's so slightly different than average. You know ah, what I mean? Okay. But, but it's you, accurate to her. It's yeah, it's accurate to her. She just has very translucent kind of skin. Mm-hmm. Uh she's very she's just very fair. So I mean it's it all comes down Heather, to Heather is people. very fair. She's a fair maiden, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah pantone that's actually a pretty cool link yeah human a human com. did you uh did you get your new cintiq yet uh i did not how do you how do you feel about those things well first of all I, let's let's okay. talk about these things so wacom the company or you call them wacom wacom i would wacom, say wacom. wacom i don't know i like wacom better i like wacom, wacom. yeah wacom sounds but who knows i don't care whatever it is they are. They have sort of the definitive uh, tablet, like drawing tablets right. for computers. Um, right. I use an Intuos three at the moment that I bought a few years ago. A six by eleven, I think it is. Okay. Uh, widescreen. Um, I like the widescreen ones. I've, I've yeah. got the Intuos five, but it's not. It's not the widescreen. Well, if you have a widescreen monitor, the widescreen makes sense, right? Because then it's sure. more of a one to one up yeah, and down you can versus map left and right. your uh, yeah. keystroke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for for those of you who uh, mess around with photos and haven't tried a tablet, or, or you know, and you're doing any kinds of retouching, do yourself a favor, go get a tablet because it makes life so much easier. You have so much more control. Yeah, uh, and it, the process becomes much more fun. Um, yeah, they're, and they're they're much more intuitive. Once you get, I, I, I will say this: it's once hard you at get beginning. over, yeah, because you're you're used to, if, especially if you're an illustrator or uh, if you draw, uh, yep. you're used to looking at 
what you're drawing, right? Yep. You're looking at watching basically where the pen or pencil, whatever instrument you're using, is, is going. And using a tablet, you're no longer doing that. You're doing everything sort of by feel, and you're looking at the screen. So there's, there's that little bit of a, a hiccup. It's probably a week or so to get yeah. used to it, you know, maybe it, a few days. Yeah, but I think once you do, trying to go back to doing stuff with a mouse or a trackball is insane. Uh, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. The 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 high end bamboo tablets, a couple hundred bucks. So it's not that uh, bad. Even even less than that. And the the new bamboo line, uh, they've integrated multi touch as well. Yeah. Uh, and and they work really well. Oh yeah, there's a low end one for eighty bucks. Yeah. Yeah. How big is that? Oh, it's tiny though. It's six. I by, think four, four by, by six. Six is the useful area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think you're at about a, a hundred and a half for uh, the larger six by eight active area. Yeah. But you know, I, I've used a smaller one, especially if you're if you're traveling or you're you know you're a laptop user. No. I, or, yeah. I, I have an old one that I used to use, an old Intuos three, a smaller one that I yeah. used for um, that I use when I travel with my laptop. Mm-hmm. And they, they they work fine. Yeah, the they bigger your screen, though, the bigger the tablet you need because there's it's sort of a one to one, you know, movement to on the screen. So if you have a lot of real estate on the screen, you know, you you don't want to have to move a millimeter or less to go one pixel. You know, you want right. to be able to have right. some control. Right. Um, anyway, so the, the Wacom also makes uh, monitors with pen tablet built in. Right. Their so-called They're Cintiq series. Touchscreen LCDs, basically. Yeah. Uh, and now the, the one they used to make, I th- originally it was like 20 inches or 19 inches. And now then they made a 20. They've now make a 22 and a 24 inch. Right. They, they made a small one, too. They made like a 12 inch. There is a 12 inch still. Yeah. I think that uh, I don't know. Did they, is that still in the line? Uh, yeah. Thousand bucks, though. OK. Um, and, uh, yeah. and I know I know uh, um, this guy. Jamie McKelvey, who's a big um, comic book artist who uh, my girlfriend's friends with, is uh, uses one of these as his main input device now. He loves oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. Love it? Yeah. I've heard other people, though, say that there's because there's a piece of glass over the screen, right, which is what you're touching with the pen, that depending on what angle you're looking at the screen, there may be a slight disconnect between where your pen is and what it's affecting. See, you know, if you're kind of coming from the side, it's kind yeah. of like there's a parallax thing that happens. That's kind of the way I would I would think about you. You're touching the glass, but then there's that eighth inch or sixteenth or whatever it is, and yep. it's going to be off just enough to to throw where you think you're painting or drawing. Yeah, I think yep. that would be. But again, you probably get used to it. Yeah, but these quickly. things are not cheap. Uh, the The 24 inch is like a regular 24 inch 1080p display, and it's twenty six hundred dollars. Yeah, uh, which is more than my fancy NEC thirty inch. Um, yeah, the the twenty two seems to be the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah you're, in their you're, line. you're paying your yeah, which is two grand. You're paying mm-hmm. you're paying to have this one to one thing. I I personally don't have a problem uh, with using a tablet and just the screen, mm-hmm. mostly because the the advantage you have is that your your hand and the pen are not covering anything. Right. You know, when, when you're actually working on a real page, the whole lower right quadrant of whatever it is right where you're working on is covered by your hand, uh, which can make things more difficult. But I can understand, but I've never been uh, an, an analog artist, visual artist in any way. So for somebody who's a painter or, or an illustrator, I can understand wanting to be able to have the one-to-one on the screen. Right. 
Yeah, I'd love to try one. Um, yeah. they, they've got the, the 24 HD touch as well that adds multi-touch on top of everything else. And that's like 3,700. That'd be pretty cool being able to like just zoom in on the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like draw, then zoom in, zoom out, slide yeah. it around. Yeah, I, I, um, would, I would definitely love to have one of those more than I would say a new camera. Yeah, and you know what? For $3,700, if you were going to have it for four years... That's not an outrageous, not an outrageous thing to do. No, especially if you're using it professionally yeah. and, and you go, well, you know, a few jobs or one job or however many jobs that pays for it. And now you've, you've got the thing. Yeah. It's not, it's not, I, it's not interesting. It's interesting to me from a like, wow, if I was independently wealthy, but not from a, Ooh, I think that would actually help my work. Right. You know? Um, if, if, if they came out with one of these that was also high DPI, you know, was 3000 or 4,000 pixel across, right. Then I'd sign up. Yeah. I, I, they're interesting. I'd like to go see one and, and see what they look like in person, see what, what, how the color rendition is and, and that kind of thing. I'd like to see one people love or, them. you know, if Wacom wanted to send us a couple, that would be cool. Yeah. We could just test them out for a year or two. <laughs> and right. uh, we'll, we'll send, send them, them right back. We'll send them right back. We'll even pay for return shipping after that year or two test period. <laughs> oh, that would be so nice, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> so if any if anybody's got the hookup to to whack them, uh, that and we'll pronounce awesome. it however you yeah, want us to pronounce it. Whack them. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I'll call um, it Jeffrey if you want. That's right. That's right. Okay, so uh, we're talking workflow today. Oh, one la- what was the last oh, thing? Oh, yeah, they- yeah. Uh, we, we talked about that Saul Leiter documentary last week. This should actually be up in uh, the uh, stuff up top, the follow-up stuff. But uh, somebody pointed out that that documentary about Bill Cunningham that is on Netflix still, I do believe, right? It, yeah, it's streaming on Netflix. Right. And, and if you haven't seen it, it's just called Bill Cunningham, New York. Uh, it is fantastic. Yeah, Absolutely the- for those of you who don't know who this guy is, he's a he's a New York photographer. He's a fashion photographer, but he just takes pictures of people on the street for New York Times and a few other people. Uh, and he literally just finds people he thinks are on the edge of fashion and takes pictures of him of them. Right. Uh, and, and you know he goes to all the parties because all the fashion people love him, but he never eats or drinks anything there because he doesn't want he doesn't want to uh, show that he has favoritism towards the people and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, He's hardcore. And is, uh, what, 82 years old, yep. I think, and rides a bicycle all over New York City. You know, if we're talking about Bill Cunningham documentary, you know, we did the Eggleston documentary last week, too. Uh, there's also a couple um, uh, Cartier-Bresson documentaries. Uh, there's a bunch of photographer documentaries, including that uh, BBC um, Genius of Photography series, which is fantastic. Is now is that a? I looked for that and I couldn't find it on. Uh, if you DVD. do enough searching, you can find it online. Yeah, you can find it online. I, I kind of wanted to see if I could get the DVDs, and I couldn't find them. Yeah. Um, yes, but it's worth watching if you can find it. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, six one-hour episodes, and they go all the way back uh, to Daguerre, and go all the way up to modern day. Um, well, about five years ago, I guess it was made. Uh, but so who's, who's the most modern photographer that they cover? Well, they they love your buddy Crutzen. I, I, he's not my buddy, but I I do dig his work, Gregory Crutzen. You don't, you have a problem with him, but I think he should press his own shutter button. <laughs> 
and and Ridley Scott should hold his own camera. I think it's a little different. <laughs> if Ridley Scott claimed to be the cinematographer of the movie, there you go. Then I would say yes, he should hold his own camera. Now, uh, a little rabbit hole. Uh, did you see Saving Private Ryan? Uh, yes, I've seen Saving Private Ryan. Okay, the, the beginning, the opening scene where they're where they're going to the beach. Yes, based upon Robert Capa's eleven frames that were saved. R- right, right, right. Uh, apparently, uh, shot by Spielberg himself. Wasn't getting what he wanted, and and asked the cinematographer, "Let me let me give it a go," and and held the camera himself and. Uh, on his shoulder and, and shot the, the That's opening That's because sequence. despite what everyone says of how Spielberg is a sellout, whatever it is, he's a giant monster filmmaker. Yeah. And he deserves everything that he gets. Derivative, perhaps. Really, really freaking good at what he does. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just a, a film like that, just, just logistically having so many units shooting at once and being able to manage that and and pull something not only cohesive out of it but but brilliant really no absolutely Uh and uh yeah uh spielberg is great and yeah i like the idea that people are doing that kind of thing you know Mm -hmm. um that 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 guys at that level are still hands-on yeah you know uh it's good stuff which kind of leads us into uh today's topic right Uh, Yes, which is Gregory Crudson and why he should press his own damn shutter button. <laughs> An entire hour devoted to yeah. So there's this guy <laughs> calls himself a photographer. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about workflow, right? Which is a little more uh, techy than we than we've gotten in the past. Well, we've gotten a couple questions about it. Yeah, haven't we? We have actually. Yeah, and uh, and it just it, it's interesting to me uh, from the point of view of, of how people work, and and in some ways, digital photography has made workflow uh, much more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that it's nearly as boring and dry as some people make it out to be. And some people are interested in the way other people take their images and, and, and go from camera to paper or camera to screen. Right. right. Uh, and, and the steps in between and, and how they work and why they work that way. And uh, I just thought we could talk a little bit about that stuff and uh, maybe enlighten some people or uh, make them think about the way they do it. Or maybe they've got great ideas that they could send in next week. Um, things that I hadn't thought of, you know, I'm meeting, there's a girl, a friend of a friend who's taking some classes in retouching and she's looking to get into the business doing retouching and I'm having uh, lunch with her in a couple of days and, and and I'm kind of looking forward to it because I have no education in retouching. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she may very well know things that I don't know. So she's like, oh, I want to pick your brain. I'm like, I'm going to pick your brain. Like, show me tricks that you right, know, right, some guy has taught right. you that I, I have not figured out yet. Um, so anyway, so back in the day i mean you used to take you know choose your film and take your pictures and a lot of photographers just handed the film over to people people like carter Bresson, they didn't do their own processing or their own printing they literally just took pictures and handed the film to people mm-hmm. um there were some people who processed their own film but that was in the minority did you pro- you've ever processed your own film sure yeah it was starting uh, high school we started uh just black, black and, and white, white. Just black and white. Yeah. Um, my grandfather helped me build a, a darkroom in the garage. That's and, cool. uh, yeah. And uh, uh, junior and senior a, year. 
grandfather like that? I don't know. Cause and he, you know, he, he was, he was shooting medium format and he had this little, uh, travel trailer outside of their, of their house that he converted to a dark room. Oh, so he had, yeah, all, all bezel gear had the full, you know, dual dichro color heads and, and, uh, would do all of his own color work and, uh, would let me just sit out and watch, you know? So it was cool. Did you, you feel like you learned a lot? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and a lot of the, the thing that changed with digital photography too, is that it's a much more personal thing in some ways, because who, whoever sits down and watches somebody work their images on a computer, you know, other than, you know, over somebody's shoulder or a screencast on YouTube or something. Well, yeah, probably. So there's those screencasts and stuff, but how many of those guys know what they're doing? Wow. (laughs) I think a lot of them do. And I think a lot of them are just doing it because it's a handy way to make money or something. You know, I don't know. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about how I do it. Um, and we, uh, so I shoot and I don't shoot a lot, right? So if I'm taking portraits of somebody, I may shoot 150 pictures, something like that. I'm not the kind of guy who sits on high speed auto and snap, da, 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 da. which interestingly enough, the other day I was listening, watching Wimbledon and, uh, that's the tennis thing, right? That is the tennis thing. And yeah. there's, uh, almost every time somebody hits, you hear in the background, what did it, what did it, you know, like just some guy with a D3 or a, or a 1D Mark IV just wailing away at 10 frames a second. Nice. Um, it's like, man, culling all those images, that must be a nightmare. Um, was, was it good, the Wimbledon? Uh, I didn't. I actually watched the first half of the final. Uh, I had $5 on it, which was a very big bet for me. Um, wow. And uh, it was good, yeah. I mean, I, I like what I watch tennis very rarely, but finals were Roger Federer. Is playing sure. Is that is that one of the big guys? Yeah, Roger Federer. I yeah. just I just wanted to see him beat the British guy, mostly because I was betting with a British kid. Nice, and he was. Yeah, I'm not never really have gotten into tennis much. Oh, singles tennis, men's singles tennis, is good stuff. Anyway, I come home, I pop in my card, and I copy everything uh, over into Lightroom. Um, some people. So you, wait, wait. You go from you go from card to Lightroom straight away. I use the Lightroom import feature, which renames and puts the images where I want to put them. Okay. And you're converting to DNG at this stage. I am converting to DNG at that stage. Okay. Um. So I the, the Lightroom little import filter. You can have it rename the images, and you can have them put it in a certain folder, uh, which I do. Um, I have a I have a, a section of my hard drive called photographs, and in that there's you know client shoots, events, people, places, projects, trips, and so there's inside of people there will be a you know a slot for Heather Conrad, you know, and and then inside of Heather Conrad are a bunch of folders based on dates. Okay. Um, backwards. Now, when, when you're you're a Lightroom user, and, and yep. I, I would hope that there are a lot of Lightroom users listening. Um, there's a debate on multiple smaller catalogs versus larger catalogs, or Um, or even one monster catalog. Where do you sit and why? One monster catalog. Really? Yeah. And Um, and are you taking advantage of like keywording and all the metadata for searching? Is that why you go one monster catalog? Uh, well, I'll tell you a few things. First of all, I don't have that many images. Mm-hmm. Um, total images that I have in here, let's see, 5,000, 10,000, let's see, 50, maybe 60,000 images. 
Maybe. I'd say that seems like an awful lot. Yeah, but you got to remember, this is five years worth of shooting. Okay. Um, this is this is everything that I own that I care about is less than 60,000 images. I know wedding photographers should take 60,000 images like in a summer. Right. You know, um, this is my entire haul from my entire life. Uh, I keep in, I keep them in one single catalog. Uh, number one, I don't have that many images. Um, number two, I want to be able to get to everything really handy. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I have backed up and put away. I have these, um, cold storage drives that I call them. I have two drives okay. called cold storage. So if it's some editorial shoot that I did five years ago that I know I'm never going to touch again, uh, cause I didn't like the pictures anyway, or, you know, some kind of something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will put them on two different cold storage drives and put them away. Uh, but maybe that's 30,000 images. So maybe a hundred thousand total, you know, but I only have 60,000 online, which is everything that I need. Right. Um, I like having them all in one place because it's handy. You know, does Lightroom allow you to search across multiple catalogs? Uh, I don't know. I've never had multiple catalogs. Okay, um, so you, you you've always done it the same way. Of, well, okay, of just here, using... here's the thing. First of all, I don't keyword, right? You don't. No. Okay. Um, like, give me an example of what kind of keywords you would put in. I don't know. Portraits. Okay. Yeah. Weddings. Sports. Okay. Dogs. Yeah. Okay. See now, I have all of my portraits are in my portraits folder. You know what I mean? Ah, okay. So okay. there's the people folder or the clients folder or the places folder. So I just based upon my file structure, it does a lot of that work for me. I okay. also have it. One of the reasons why I use Lightroom, and I'll get into that in a second, uh, is that I like knowing where my images are. And by using DNG and having Lightroom write metadata over to the DNG files all the time, my Lightroom catalog doesn't matter. You could come over here right now, delete my Lightroom catalog, and I'll lose like a couple of virtual copies that I've made somewhere to like make a black and white version or something like that. Okay. Um, everything else is inside all the files. So I just open up a new catalog, drag and drop everything in, wait a half an hour, and I'm back up where I was. Okay. Um, I don't keep anything important inside the catalog, as it were. You know, the catalog file is right. largely just, a, it's just an index essentially okay. of my work. Okay. So on my hard drive, everything is just in folders of folders of folders so that I can get to, you know, I want, I want pictures of my brother-in-law. I go to Kevin trailer and there are the pictures of Kevin trailer, you know? Okay. So you're drilling down into client name. Yep. So you'll go portraits. Uh, oh, well, uh, I have people, I keep people and client people is generally people I've shot for me or for my personal stuff. Okay. Uh, and then I have a client shoot, you know, folder. But mm-hmm. like if I did something for pause, it'll be called, you know, pause slash Terry Williams, you know, and okay. that, you know, okay. there, there's Terry Williams. Okay. Um, and each that's, of the files are. Basic, yeah. Yeah. That's basically the same way I, I structure all of my design jobs yep. is it's just client, you know. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and it may be that the reason why I do this is because I used to do that kind of work and that's the sure. way I worked back then. You just kind of, it, it works for that medium. So why not? Yeah. What terrifies me is things like iPhoto and early versions of Aperture, where mm-hmm. it was like your photo library is this one bundle that has everything right. inside it, it of it. It is really dependent on keywording and location data and all of that metadata that yeah. you don't spend a lot of time doing. My, you know, my entire iPhoto library is this one file that I can show package contents of, but is still kind of confusing even when you get in there. Right. 
that terrifies me. I want to know exactly where my stuff is at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't trust a computer. <laughs> I don't trust any software. I don't trust Lightroom or Aperture or whatever. So, yes, I use Lightroom for keeping track of things and I use it for raw conversion, but I don't really use it to help me find stuff. I mean, even on the left hand, you know, in, in the library mode in, in Lightroom, I'm just looking at my folder structure the way it is on my hard drive. Right. You know, um, and I, I like it that way because I know where everything stands and I don't have to worry about Lightroom keeping track of stuff for me. Now, I don't do any keywording, but I do in the file name often put the uh, the date of somebody. Let's say I always take pictures of you. I could write Jeffrey Doris, you know, image number 101 or whatever. Right. But if I've shot you multiple times, how do I know which 101 is which 101, you know? Right, right, right. Um, right. So sometimes I'll put the date inside of the file name. So I'll say uh, 120710, which would be, you know, today, July 10th, 2012. You know, but I do it as a six-digit thing. I'll put that in the file name. So I'll say, you know, 120710, Jeffrey Sidoris, image 101. But, do, okay, have you? do you ever get into a spot where that that keyword data could be I, I don't know maybe you you need to find all of the portraits of of women that you've taken yeah i could never do that it would take you forever right or you know all of the outdoor portraits true or no 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 that it's it's absolutely a weakness but the idea of tagging images as i import them like that mm-hmm. it just always seems like a waste to me or rather i don't i don't do those kinds of searches so i don't need to look that way right um Whereas somebody who maybe shoots weddings could tag those things because yeah. they're always or a stock look- photographer. A st- oh, sure, stock. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I completely understand why some people would use key f- keywords. I just never do. Um, and some people might say I'm crazy for that. Uh, but uh, but it makes it easy. I do, however, it's funny because even though I put the date sometimes in the into the um, the file name. Most of the time you don't need to, right? Because uh, Lightroom can drill down into the metadata that's already there. And part of that is the date that it was shot. You right. Know, the camera's right. imprinting right, right. the date on there. You don't really need to do it. You know, the right. capture it's date already there on there. some level. Right. Um, it's also nice to be able to pull things into Lightroom and say, show me all the, pic- all the pictures of people I've taken with the 3514. You know, you can, you know, do metadata searches based upon lenses. That is always kind of fun. Or show me all the pictures I took with my 20D back when I had one six, seven years ago. Um, I do those kinds of things sometimes. Um, Okay. Now, now how do you deal with um, master versus sort of in progress if you're working on a composite or how, how many iterations of an image do you do you keep because i know sure. i know some photographers that they, they they here's my dng or here's my master once that gets opened a copy is made and the the master is never touched again and okay. then there's final there's final print there's yep. final web how 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 detailed do you get in terms of of multiple iterations of an image and and why would one solution be better or worse than another okay um, first of all, let me back up a little bit. Cause so once I get them in there, I usually do a few rounds to get to the ones that I want to work on. Right. Um, 
I go through all the images and I give anything that is looks like it is worthwhile, like with a one or two second viewing, one star. Yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no. And I'll go and through. The nose, are you deleting the nose from the disk drive or well, are you just deleting them from the catalog? Right now at this stage, they stay on. Okay. Right. And uh, they're, they're just there. They just don't have any, they don't have any uh, um, stars, zero stars. Right. Then I say, show me all the one stars. And then I go through all the one stars and give the best ones two stars and then do the two stars, give them three stars. Okay. So, so I cull it down. So 150 becomes 75, becomes 30, becomes 15. And then by four stars, those are the ones that I know I want to do something with. Okay. So you've not started any sort of post I haven't touched other anything. than selection yeah. at this point. I mean, every once in a while, like during this process, I'll you know say, oh, these are all too dark by half a stop and I'll pull them all up a little bit or something sure, sure, sure. just to be able to see what I'm doing. But yeah, no, I haven't touched anything. I'm doing selects based upon them right out of the camera. Okay. Um, so your four stars are, these are the images yeah. that I'm going to go forward with. Yeah. These are the five images out of the 150 that I actually think have potential. Um, so yeah, so that's, so that, so that gets us up to the area that you're talking about, right? Right. So right. I have these four. So I'm, now I'm say, just show me four stars and I'll, I'll, I'll look at the DNGs and I'll, I'll figure out, and then I'll play with these a little bit, trying to get the most out of them, open up the shadows a little or little, you know, a little this, little that to try to get them pretty close to how I want them to work in Photoshop. I very, very, very rarely only do something in Lightroom. You know. Okay. Yeah. Now. Okay. Okay. So you're 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 using Lightroom to do kind of the big picture things. Yep. It's cataloging. It's doing like the overall uh, uh, white balance, just straight raw processing stuff. Every once in a while, if there's a piece of dust on the sensor, I'll fix that with the little you know thing inside sure. of Lightroom the clone heel tool. Yeah. yeah. But uh, for the most part, it is it is a cataloging tool. It is raw conversion. You know, it's white balance and 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 opening up the shadows. It's not doing real work. Okay. So now you've got your four-star you know, images. I, you know what I do use a lot is the um, uh, the lens correction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll even go into the manual and use the vertical and horizontal to sort of change the perspective a little bit. It's sort of like a little tilt-shift kind of function. And, and are you getting rid of aberration like are you are you correcting for pincushion distortion or are you adding distortion in to create some sort of stylistic change all, almost all of my lenses are inside of the library so mm-hmm. i usually keep the enable profile corrections on and that fixes distortion and, and vignetting and that kind of stuff sure but then i'll go into manual and use vertical and horizontal to sort of change the perspective just a little bit so like if i want their the top their head is a little bit bigger or you know i want to sh- shrink sometimes i'll tilt it top forward or you know that kind of thing right right right, right. just change the perspective a little bit uh, or now, are you doing okay are you doing this on the the original and, and to this point only dng file yeah, or have yeah, you I'm, made a, i'm messing okay. around with the dng file now okay. lightroom keeps theoretically keeps a history of everything you do to your dng files right um, so I can go all the way back to the second I imported it. But okay. I mean, what the changes that I'm making are not the kinds of things that I'm like, oh no, I need to undo that. You know, right, right, plus right. all this stuff is completely non-destructive anyway. So it's not changing the DNG file at all. It's, this is all just metadata getting applied to the DNG file. Sure. Sure. Um, 
So, okay, and then then you're going into Photoshop. Once right. you get the, these big picture things, you're going into Photoshop. And are you editing original? Are you editing a copy with Lightroom adjustments? Well, are you- if you're going from a DNG, you're always going to create a new file. Right? Okay. So it's whether or not you're cre- whether you're creating a TIFF or a PSD. Uh, lately, I've been using TIFF, although I used to be a big PSD person for some reason. Um, lately, I've been using TIFF just because that's what Lightroom defaults to, and I did an email back and forth with John Knack, who you know runs the uh, Photoshop sure. team over there, and I was like, sure. why is it that Lightroom defaults to TIFF when you guys have your own format, PSD, and is anything lost by using TIFF versus PSD? And he said nothing gets lost, and that TIFF has a few advantages because you can play around with the compression more. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also, uh, I think the files can go up to four gigs as opposed to two gigs, uh, in the regular TIFF files. The TIFFs seem to open a lot faster too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. A lot of times TIFFs will be bigger, but they will open and close faster because there's less of the compression. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I open up as TIFF in Photoshop and I do my work, uh, and I save it. Uh, I do not keep multiple versions of that file, whatever, file i've been working on the tiff that's very unusual that i would ever make a copy of that and keep working to keep like my steps through the, right. through this thing right. um i do however very rarely flatten layers so all of my steps are already in the file okay if I'm but just you're not creating uh snapshot iterations no, along the way never do that the only time i do that is if i'm trying to show somebody progress if i'm doing a tutorial or that kind of thing mm-hmm um, but w- I work on the file and then I save it back to Lightroom and then that file gets five stars. So anything that I've worked on that is a TIFF that I've done work on is sort of a finalized file, even if it's not quite completely done. Right. It gets five stars. And I actually um, shrink the stack. I collapse the stack because those two, those two, the, the DNG and the, and the TIFF are connected inside of Lightroom when you open up a DNG like that. Right. So I'll say, you know what? Just collapse the stack so that it really only ever shows me the Okay, tip. so you're only seeing the affected image. You're never really seeing the four-star original DNG. Right. Or, or yeah. I mean, okay. it's always there, but... Right, you know, but you're not seeing it in a little film strip Yeah, view. because you know what? I, I don't care about that one. I care about the one I've, I've done work to it now. I'm beyond it. I'm beyond the original DNG. Every once in a while, you have to go back to the DNG because, oh, the highlights are all blown out in that part. Okay, now I'm going to re-render it with the exposure way down, import that in, put that in a layer and use darken, you know, and or whatever it is. Right. Right. Um, so every once in a while you'll have to make multiple versions, but I try not to. Um, so really the, the, my files, it's just the DNG and the one I'm working on. And when you're say exporting to portfolio or exporting to, to web, are you keeping copies of those images at multiple resolutions or, no. Once they've served their purpose, they're they're gone. So you're only ever keeping that five star. Um, okay, TIFF so file. when I'm completely done with a picture, and it's it's five stars, it's done. I'm happy with it. Um, one of the last things I do is I export that up to my Dropbox account as a, as a JPEG, as a flat JPEG. At at full res or full are you res resizing? at like eighty five percent. Um percent uh, c- compression you know the quality at 85 right, right, right um basically that's sort of like my backup my like last ditch backup in case my house burns down you right know? so even if i don't have the original dng or the tiff that i worked on i have a high res file that represents my final file within 99 percent out of 100 you know right, right, right high-end jpegs look just great 
Now, are um, you are you following the sort of three two one rule of backup? Um, I I now, hold on. Let me back up for a sec. For those of you who don't know, the, the three two one rule is basically uh, three copies uh, on two different media, one of them offsite. So yeah, I guess I do. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I I use all hard drives, right? I don't put out to optical. Okay. Um, so you're never burning DVDs? No. Ever? Nope. Okay. Um, I have my, my main catalog with all the images on it is on, this, is on a RAID 0 array, actually, which is in many ways very dangerous. Um, but I automatically have it back up a couple times a day to hey, another wait, hard drive. Uh, RAID 0 is not uh, mirroring. RAID 0 is striping. fastest performance. Yes. Basically, okay. it's, it's writing... Uh, half of the data to one hard drive and half the data to the other hard drive so that it can write all of the data in half the time. Okay. But if one of those striped drives fails, I lose you're kind of screwed. Right. Yeah. So you're okay. doubling the chances of losing stuff based on a, a hard drive failure. However, um, like I said, I have it cloning that drive a couple times a day. And after I work on something, I'll do it manually a lot of times. So but it'll get cloned is, to this is, other drive. Is the performance difference on a RAID 0 array that much better than RAID 1? <laughs> You know, oh yeah, yeah. Is like it really twice okay. as much? I mean, you're okay. you're you're doing everything twice as fast. Theoretically, RAID ones can read at twice the speed because they can read half the data from each. Uh, but when they're writing, they got to write all of it to both of them. Um, however, in practice, RAID one generally feels like a single drive. It's just rating it to two drives, and it's not really backup. It's just sort of redundancy in case right. like so. Right. Yeah. Um, Chances are, if something happens to your box, then it's going to happen to both of those drives anyway. Right. Now, I, I, the reason why I use RAID 0 is I've, I did this RAID 0 thing with this new Ivy Bridge machine that I've been using. On my old machine, when I used to save out my 2.5 gigabyte PSD or TIFF files, it used to take like 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, it takes about 12 seconds on my new machine. Right. So it's dramatically faster, like less than half the time. Um, so, so for me, that, that's worth being a little scared by the fact that my array is always on the edge of the cliff. Right. Um, but it's okay because, you know, I'm backing it up all the time. And like I said, I put all of my final JPEGs of all my final images up in the cloud. Uh, so to answer your question, uh, I have it in three different places. I guess there are two different media cause one's up on the cloud. <laughs> um, right. and one of the, and I, and I am getting it off site up on the cloud. So, right. 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 Um, if my house burned down, would I lose my images? I would lose the originals, but you know what? Like if my house burns down, I have bigger problems than my picture of Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> Probably, you know, um, <laughs> and having them up on Dropbox is actually really handy because if I'm out, I was out in, uh, in Utah at Arches national park. And I had, um, a magazine call me about a picture. They wanted to swap out a picture. They needed this other one. And I had it up on Dropbox and I just sent them a link straight from the national park. Nice. And they could just download it. You know, I wasn't even at yeah. home, but yeah. I had access to all my final images. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like Dropbox a lot. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so that's generally the way I work. I'm sure I missed something in there. Well, it's, it seems that you've, you've, you've come across a workflow that, that works really well for your type of photography. And yep. I'd be curious to hear from some of the listeners, um, who who maybe do different types of photography, some sports shooters, uh, photojournalism. How are you guys handling 
the multitude of images? Yeah. Are, are, are you tagging? Are you just using folder structures? Because I don't think there's any one that's better or worse than another. It just how you reconcile what works for you for yeah. your particular flow. I just don't trust the software to not mess things up mm-hmm. when it comes to catalogs and things. Um, somebody wrote in asking about uh, Lightroom versus Aperture and why I, I use Lightroom. Because uh, they're still supporting Lightroom. <laughs> yeah, well, number one, I'm, I'm an Adobe fan. I, mm-hmm. I like Adobe products. Um, since I'm bringing it into Photoshop, the two work very well together. Right. Uh, that's one of the reasons. Another one of the reasons was I used to be a PC guy, so I wasn't using a Mac. Right. Uh, so that wasn't really an option. Um, I like the fact that it's cross-platform, though. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious where, if anywhere, uh, at this point, Apple is going to go with, with Aperture. Uh, there was I, a big thing, you know, Scott Bourne jumped ship. Yep. Um, I think Chase Jarvis is still using Aperture, but more as a cataloging and uh, sort of storage front end. Not, I'm not sure about the whole post end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also personally didn't like the whole floating tools and panels over the image. Okay. That always made me a little, for some reason that I didn't like that. Does it um, feel too iPhoto-y? Like it was Yeah, there's to- part of that. And it's also, I, 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 the, the times that I've used it, I have had a hard time finding what I was looking for. And I'm sure that's okay. just because, you know, you're in a different, it's like when you go to a new grocery store and you have no idea where they keep the chips. Sure. Um, uh, there's definitely that. I will be honest with you. The last time I used it was Light or Aperture Two, um, which I know was a long time ago. But back then, I do believe it was still all using sort of a single Aperture library setup, which again I don't like. Um, and I've heard a lot yeah. of people complain about stability, like crashes a lot. Um, Even I people used, who like it, I used it for a little while, and I uh, I, I never had crashing problems. There were speed issues, though. Using some of the retouching brushes, uh, in some cases, was painfully slow in terms of, of screen redraw and updating. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, then some of the feature sets that they were adding, just, I don't know. It, it felt more consumery, and it, sure. it felt like less of a production-ready tool. And I think that's one of the things that I, that I do like about Lightroom, although... I, I hate the idea of modules. I, I hate that I yeah, have to go from... Yeah, the whole modal from, thing is not great. Yeah, that you've got to go from the library mode to the develop mode. I mean, yeah, okay, it's just pressing D on the keyboard or whatever, but it, it just seems unnecessarily compartmentalized. Yeah, there's things you can't do in, li- in develop that you can do in library and vice versa. And yeah, it, it could get tricky. Right. Um, uh, I agree. No, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that, but I've gotten used to it, so it's sort of just part of my world now. Now, you've gone uh, to Lightroom 4, obviously. Are you noticing, have you gone back and looked at some of the images that you did in 2 or 3 with the new processing engine, and have you noticed? I actually recently opened a photograph I took with a digital Rebel in 2004 on a trip out west with my father, which was a 6-megapixel file that I converted to DNG a couple years ago, um, and moved it up to the new process and started playing around with it, and yeah, it's improved. Hmm. Um, Color's better, sharpness is better, uh, less fringing. So all those things add up, you know? Uh, Some people complain about, some people talk about, oh, Aperture or Capture One or Lightroom or whatever are better raw processors and you get better colors or you can do more with the image. I think that at this point, they're all really good. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe 
uh, Adobe and Capture One, people say, are, are, are the best. But, you know, Adobe keeps updating theirs like <laughs> it feels like daily. Right. Um, so, you know what? I, 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 I don't know. I trust Adobe. They've been around forever. Do you do you see a time where, or, or maybe not for you, but for a lot of photographers where Photoshop is not necessary because oh, sure. the tools in Lightroom have gotten so good? Yeah, I know a lot of people who don't open things in Photoshop. Uh-huh. Um, it's just the kind of work that I do is somewhat more illustrative right? than just straight photos. But if you were like a newspaper guy or somebody who like isn't allowed to touch their photos. Right. Yeah, Lightroom's fine. And what I do is I just I use all their the export features um, inside of Lightroom to have it sh- resize and sharpen on export, which works great. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I usually do sharpen for screen standard anytime I'm going to screen. So so, so you're not using any sort of third-party sharpening. You're no. just using what's built in. Okay. Yep. And nowadays, I mean, both in Photoshop and in Lightroom, I mean, the sharpening tools are amazing. And the noise reduction tools in Lightroom are incredible. Yeah, the the new uh, sharpening and yeah. noise reduction brushes. I'm surprised that any in. of these people, the other people can stay in business. I mean, they're really good. I also like having things built in, you know. Not having to go to, to plugins or, yeah. or anything. You know, I like to use the built-in stuff as much as possible. Hmm. Um. But I'm weird that way. Well, not just that way. Yeah. Uh, so if you guys have any thoughts on uh, workflow, send us an email. It's a podcast at ontakingpictures.com. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to hear, because I know Nikki has struggled with finding a workflow that works for her. Yeah. Um, and I think she's pretty much settled on, on something very similar to the way you do it, where um, she's using more of a folder tree structure um, more so than, than keywording or tags or, yeah. or appending sort of metadata to the, to the images. My workflow in no way gets in my way. You know, it's gotten to the point where it's just sort of the way I do things now. I don't but that's, think about that's it. kind of the goal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, you shouldn't have to think about or spend a lot of time yeah. thinking about how you're managing the images. You want to get the images in processed out to the client or yeah. out to you know whatever as but fast I'm as I'm also you can. a fairly technical photographer mm-hmm. so I also like new features in software and ways of doing things I know a lot of people who are not digitally inclined it's like man you got to back up more and they don't know how to do that or what that means you know so I have a pretty good setup because I'm also pretty anal about this stuff um so it's, sometimes it's hard, you know, because I think that I think that there's a lot of people out there talking about, oh, this is, you know, this is how you this is digital workflow. And it's kind of like, well, digital workflow means whatever it means to you. I mean, right. As long That's as you're covering the bases workflow. of. Yeah, right. So as long as it, you can you can find the images you're looking for, uh, you can edit them efficiently and you can get them to where they need to go. Then all the rest of it's irrelevant as long as you're backing stuff up, you know. So don't listen to what everybody else says. If, if you know, I, I choose to convert to DNG for a number of reasons. I choose to rename my files uh, with the date inside of them. You may think that that's a waste of time. And as long as whatever you're doing works for you, then that's great. You right, know? right. Um, uh, one, one thing that, that uh, I found interesting at least and maybe charming at most is, is in the Bill Cunningham documentary where he's, he, he shoots film still. 
yep. uh, and and has kept every negative that he presumably has ever shot, and they're just in these enormous uh, metal file cabinets that he keeps in his apartment. Yep, and and that's that's the workflow. Is you know I I know by year or by month. Uh, what I shot, and and it's just it's amazing to see what a a resource he has put around him, and how and how it 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 affects. Uh, I'd like to see though how good he is at actually finding something from a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, like show me something you shot in 1963 in Valentino's spring yeah. collection, or something. or yeah, yeah, or like oh, do you remember that girl with blue shorts on from the 60s? Can you find me that picture? You know, yeah. Um, I think that digital has done a lot to allow us uh, control over our images in a way that we never did before, and that includes keeping track of things. I, a friend who I had lunch with today, Randy, he doesn't. He uses uh, Bridge. He doesn't use Lightroom. He says everything Lightroom does, I do in Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's. I mean, it's. At least in, it's similar to the way you're doing things. Bridge is, is basically a glorified file manager, and, and you're doing everything at the folder and the file name level. Yep. So you, I don't think – I mean, if, if Lightroom suddenly took away all the organizational features, you could still do exactly what you do because of the way you're doing it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, those things are handy to me, but I don't require them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Well, I'm sure there'll be questions and things next week and we can go a little yeah. bit more into this, but it's, uh, I mean, even the, that documentary that saw lighter, he, uh, you saw him walking around with a little digital camera, like a little right. Sony right. thing or whatever it is. Um, I wonder how he keeps his stuff straight. Yeah. It's interesting, especially some of those guys who have, who have had such a career, like Maisel. I mean, yeah. doesn't he have millions of negatives? Oh yeah. Literally millions. Oh, by the way, uh, when I'm done with a whole shoot and I know and I've delivered and everything like that, I will often go back and delete zero star images. Okay, but you keep them the ca- through the process just in case. Yeah, just in case. Because every once in a while you're like, oh, that one's really nice. And you go back and you go, oh, I wonder if I have another one like that, but kind of like this. And when I was doing the first run, I just kind of jumped over it. Right. Uh, and I'll go back and find one. And I'll bring it up from two to four. Or, you know what I mean? Every once in a while, there's something in zero that I need part of an image to composite in because, oh, her hair got weird there, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, but once once I'm done, most of the time, I will delete at least the zero stars. And if it's a big shoot where I had tons of one stars, a lot of times I'll delete the one star too. Because what am I ever going to do with pictures that are out of focus or, you know? Sure. There are three identical, except this one, you know, is a little bit smeared or something. It's like, well, I'm never going to touch that. So delete it. Right. Um, they don't do that. Of course, at the white house, they have to keep every image, but luckily I'm not Pete Souza. (laughs) Okay. At least there's that, (laughs) man, that would be a sucky job. (laughs) All right. Who is, uh, this week's photographer of the week Uh, and see if anybody can guess. Well, no, because it's not live. So it wouldn't really make any difference, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) I do love a, a quote that I found uh, by him. Well, let's let's have the quote before we say yeah, who it is. The, the, it's a great quote. Uh, Perhaps the world's second worst crime is boredom. The first is being a bore. <laughs> what a dandy, right? Uh, yeah, this is Cecil Beaton, who, uh, if you've never heard of him, is a was a portrait photographer. Uh, was born like at the turn of the last century, lived until 1980. 
uh, he was like a, a portrait photographer. He, he, he also did some fashion stuff. He also was an interior designer and designed costumes for theater and stage. He was like, he was terribly British and terribly fantastic. Um, I found yeah. him, I, you know, I mean, I knew of him, but I never really looked at his work much uh, until there was a show of his work at the city, uh, museum of the city of New York, uh, last year that my mother and I were, went to go see something else and, and his stuff was there. And it was wonderful. So I went and got the book. Um, you know, a lot of photos in here that I, I know the photograph, but I didn't know the photographer. Yep. There's, yep. A, there's a very famous shot of Audrey Hepburn. Um, looks like straight out of My Fair Lady. Yep. Um, which it may very well be. Um, Liz Taylor, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Uh, some really fantastic shots that are all... And there's a lot of uh, writers and stuff. I mean, you know, actors and stuff. There's Orson Welles and Aldous Huxley and and, and all kinds of people like that. Marlene Dietrich and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, He is is a good photographer. He is not like, oh, my God, he is a brilliant photographer from a technical point of view. Um, But his portraits, some of them are not, at least in the book that I have, there's a lot of, like, rich women from the 1920s. Okay, and, and they're just sort of like your boring, annoying picture of some rich woman. Um, but then so, there's some that you know. There's the shot of Lillian Gish with like uh, um, mirrors on either side of her. Right, <clears throat> she's sort of sitting in the corner of the mirrors, and you kind of get the profiles and the front shot. Right, <coughs> which is a lovely image. Um, but it, do a, there was a, a Brando image that I thought I saw. Did I see a yep, Marlon Brando yep, image? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it, he is one of those examples, again, of the people who were doing stuff back in the day that people think they're fancy for doing now, you know, um, like a lot of the 1920s uh, fashion stuff, which all involved like silver foil and crazy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He was doing all that stuff back in the day, well before anybody else, uh, or, you know, back back way before the 70s and 80s, you know. Right, right. Um, crazy costume stuff a lot of like multiple lights with multiple his shadows aren't that great some of his pictures kind of have a karsh-esque kind of quality to them Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, although i don't think with quite the same uh uh uh, what's the word um control that karsh had uh Control in terms of, of lighting of or lighting, compositional control or I, what? Both. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. I, I think he was a little more just flippant about the whole thing. Um, Karsh seems like he was pretty anal about that kind of stuff. You know, there's a light on the cigarette that is in the guy's hand and so he can't move. Um, but he's British and he knew a lot of people. And so he shot the queen a number of times uh, and her husband. There's a great picture of Robert Kennedy and his wife. Hmm. Uh, where she's kind of standing behind him, like over his shoulder, and it's really cute. It's kind of a famous picture, right? Uh, great. There's some amazing, amazing stuff in here. Mostly black and white. Uh, although in the later days he did do some color work, which is actually really strange to see uh, in person. You know, because you look at these prints and you're like, oh, that's so strange. It was like in the '60s or '50s, and you're so used to seeing all this stuff in black and white. And there's some color images, you know, of fashion. Uh, which are, what, are uh, what what book did you get? Uh, this book is Beaten Portraits. Okay. It's called. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. A couple of them are, are unfortunately out of print. Yep. Um, I think I might have bought this one used. So I, Actually, I think I got it at the Strand when I went to look for it. 
So there's some good stuff in here. Cecil Beaton, definitely old school dandy kind of character, uh, but uh, pretty great stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's a new guy. See, you know, we got to find these guys that a lot of people wouldn't have thought of normally. I wouldn't have thought of him. Yep. That's why we're here, Jeffrey. <laughs> Is that why we're here? That's one of the reasons why we're here. All right. Fair enough. Uh, got anything else before we wrap up? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thank you for, uh, for listening. Um, if you have a review or a rating, uh, head over to iTunes. Yeah. Jot down a few words, kind or otherwise. We'd love to hear from you. You know, and we're, we're getting a lot of feedback to, uh, to the email address. and Surprising amount of feedback. Yeah, we, we love it. So keep yeah, it coming. it's good. It's very cool. Thank you to everyone who's written in. And, uh, you know, we're really trying to grow this show. And so if you know anybody out there who's into photography, listens to podcasts, maybe they don't listen to podcasts, you know, take their iPhone, download the new podcasts app from Apple. Don't, no, that's not the one you want. Is it terrible? It's, it's not very good. To be honest with you, it's okay. it's. I I use a different one. I use um. Let's see what I use. I is, use iCatcher. Okay. A lot of people like Downcast, right? Uh, I, I tried Downcast. I didn't like it. I ended up using um an app called Pocket Cast, which I I really love a lot. Okay. Um, I bought iCatcher and. Um, I don't know. Just didn't like the interface so much. Uh, I, I really like the uh, the Pocket Casts. It's it's more visual, and you can you know you can see how much of something you've listened to. It's it's just go check it out, Pocket Cast or Eyecatcher because you like that one. I like Eyecatcher. I like Downcast too. Anyway, mm-hmm. g- get one of those and uh, and put on taking pictures on there. You know, if every one of you tells one or two people, and they tell one or two people, we can really grow this thing. Uh, It'll be like that shampoo commercial. What what happens in that sh- shampoo commercial? You know, and they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, yeah, and okay. so on, and so on. It's and like so that. On. So, if you like the show, uh, spread the word. Uh, <laughs> we love the new people. And uh, let's see, Twitter. I am at Bill Wadman, W A D M A N. And I am at Jeffrey Sidoris, J E F F E R Y S A D D O R I S. Um, or you can find me at fadeandblurred.com. And of course, the show notes will always be at ontakingpictures.com slash podcast. Uh, you, now you can also leave. Can, you, you can comment per episode. You can comment yeah. on each episode. Right? Yeah, you just have to click on the episode specifically to get into sort of like the main episode page. It's you know, but if you click there, you'll just see you'll see all the posts, but you'll see the whole post, but you won't get the uh, comment area. You have to like click the title to get to the actual page of the post to comment. Okay, so for each individual, it's episode, a WordPress you- thing, Jeffrey. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, so yeah so that's good we'll we'll see you uh, next week if you've got ideas or feedback uh, send it in excellent alright see you next week <laughs>